Hi, I'm your host, Brittany Spence, and this is In the Face of Illness. We are a podcast committed to cultivating a greater understanding of the many resources available for families facing childhood illness, because we believe this is a vital topic of conversation, not only for families in the throes of the fight, but for everyone. Ultimately, we are here to offer hope in the face of illness. Though her degree is in physical therapy, Sarah Hanai currently serves as the director of the Junior League Family Resource Center at Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt. Prior to that, she was a senior patient experience consultant with Vanderbilt Medical Center and the parent-to-parent program manager for Family Voices of Tennessee. Originally from Philadelphia, she has lived in Nashville, Tennessee since 1999, where she has raised four children with her husband, Ramin. Her children and the time they have spent in Monroe Carroll are what motivated her to change career paths to be able to support patients and families along their healthcare journeys. We are so excited to have Sarah on with us today. Um, So welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Um, So Sarah, let's just kind of get started on you telling us a little bit um, about your role as the director of the Family Resource Center. Sure. So the Family Resource Center is really just kind of a space where we try to support families with any of their non-medical needs. Um, And that can range from emergency clothing um, to actual resources, you know, books and tangible things like that, or getting them connected with social work or with outside community resources. Um, You know, every day we never quite know what to expect, but anything a family comes to us with, we try to make sure that they don't leave without what they need. Okay. That's amazing. Um, And how many do you have on staff there? So the Family Resource Center has myself, two program managers, and an administrative assistant, but we fall under the umbrella of the Patient and Family-Centered Care team. So through that, we collaborate all the time with our child life specialists, music therapy, our chaplains, our hospital educators. Um, You know, we have a whole team that really might not be meeting the medical needs of our patients and families, um, but support them so that they can receive the health care that they need and move through those journeys successfully. Okay. Um, And so just through your bio, you know, reading a little bit about, you know, the senior patient experience consultant and the parent-to-parent program manager, what led you to this role? What made you want to, um, you know, we talked before the podcast how we both have had different careers um, that we started off. You were physical therapy, I was education, um, and then how it's kind of weaved into this. So tell me kind of about that. Why did you, um, this is a newer role for you, and so tell me a little bit about what kind of led you there. So, I mean, how long do we have? Because really, (laughs) I feel like this role is the, the position that I was meant to be doing. Um, I started this job in July, um, I was I was just so excited when um, that my predecessor reached out to me and let me know that she was going to be retiring um, because this is exactly where I wanted to land. So my degree, as we spoke about a little earlier, is in physical therapy. 
Um, growing up, I was constantly injured. I was doing sports all the time. And so I constantly had the broken bones and all the other things. Um, and I was fortunate to have both of my parents and all of my grandparents and lots of aunts and uncles and cousins around me, which is wonderful and incredible, but also means that there's going to be some experiences with hospitals and healthcare in general. So when I thought I wanted to go into physical therapy as a high schooler, that's a very tangible way to impact someone's life in a positive way. And I think at the time I needed that concrete, someone comes to you with a physical need. And by the time they leave, maybe they're walking, maybe they're just able to transfer from their wheelchair, whatever it may be, their quality of life has hopefully improved because of your intervention. Um, and then, you know, my life kind of went off in a different direction. We had four kids in five years and the youngest two both were born with a condition called craniosynostosis, um, which we'd never heard of and is an extremely long word that just means that the suture in their skull had fused too early. And so their skull couldn't grow, which meant that their brain development could have been impacted if we didn't take care of it. And it was really scary. Um, you know, essentially the, the cosmetic treatment for that is a complete craniofacial reconstruction and a craniotomy, um, which are all just super scary things to hear as a parent. And all I wanted to do was speak to another family who had an older child who had been through it and was on the other side of it and was doing okay. So as soon as we moved through it, I immediately started kind of trolling boards and trying to find other families that I could offer that support to. Um, it was just so important to me and I wanted to be able to pay it forward. We took photographs and documented our kids' journey. And so eventually I was connected with our family advisory board at Monroe Carroll. We have a very robust group of family advisors and Monroe Carroll is incredible about putting family advisors in spaces where you wouldn't necessarily think that families wanted, they would want families. So whether that's safety concerns, hospital acquired infections, all of these committees and work groups, they invite and welcome parent feedback on. Um, and so through that, I was placed on a couple of patient experience committees throughout the entire medical center, not just at Children's. And so we started moving through that um, and it was really impactful, but limiting. So all we were doing was giving feedback, but not necessarily being able to see things being implemented and work through things to the other side. And so then I had my own diagnosis. I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer in 2015, which again, kind of shook everything up and started things going in a different direction. Um, and health equity became really important to me at that time and really seeing families and seeing the diversity of families and how some people had access to all the things that they could possibly need and that positively impacted their outcomes. And some people didn't and that had a negative impact on their outcomes. So I became more involved and I became a patient experience consultant, which mostly means that I took all that survey information, you know, the annoying surveys that you get after visits. My job was to make sure that doctors and clinics 
we're seeing that information and seeing those patient comments and then to work with them on tangible ways that they could improve the care that they were providing. And so that's where I was for three years until I landed in this place. Wow. Goodness. Well, first, kudos to you for taking some really hard things um, and turning them into good. I mean, seeing those things and um, I can't imagine how hard it was to get uh, the diagnosis for both of your kids. How are they both doing today after, you know, going through the surgeries and the things that they had to go through? Um, They're incredible. They really, you know, it's, it was really scary in the moment, but we were very grateful that we had a specific diagnosis with a specific treatment with a very specific expected outcome. Um, and so our younger one had a couple of extra procedures to get to where she needed to be, but we had a team that walked alongside us the whole way and she got to that place. So the other piece that's kind of kept me here was my older daughter, um, just after I fin- was finished up with my cancer treatment, started having joint pain that wasn't explained by, you know, twisting an ankle or anything else. Um, and she was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis and systemic lupus, which has been a whole other adventure. And that's not going to be like craniosynostosis. That's a lifelong journey for her. Um, and so you have both the, how you treat it in the moment and the knowledge that over the course of time, how is your body impacted by putting daily medications and weekly injections? Um, how does that impact other aspects of your life? So we're still navigating through that. Um, but it's also that has really brought my attention to the importance of transitional care and how we're supporting families to start teaching their kids at 13 years old that you have to understand what's going on in your butt with your body and you have to know how to speak to providers yourself and then supporting parents as they try to step back from something that they've been so involved in and it's really hard to let go of and to just expect them to magically do that is also not realistic. So really trying to be thoughtful and intentional in that five-year time span between 13 and 18 about how we educate children and how we support parents as they move to that next phase. Yeah. Wow. Which I think is, as you said, something that we have also noticed that children's hospitals as a whole, I think do so well really managing children and their pediatric patients and population. Sometimes where we really do see some faltering is exactly that, the transition from the pediatric world to the adult world. Often parents are holding on so tight because it's all they've known for 16, 17, 18, you know, years. Um, they've, those doctors have walked that with them for so long. Those healthcare workers have walked with them that long that they can't imagine going to someone new and, and their feelings starting over. And so I'm seeing that in the hospitals that we work closely with that, you know, that is starting to be a real big, um, you know, uh, thing that's happening is, is supporting those families because that is not going away. That is going to continue. And I know at least in some of the hospitals we support that, you know, especially with cardiology, you know, so often the adult cardiologists, you know, that work with the adult population 
don't always don't always have I don't want to say the best handle, but maybe don't understand the pediatric as well because adult cardiology is often, in all honesty, a lot of times the effect of our our own lifestyle choices and things that we've done or not done or whatever else, and it's come on later versus these pediatric patients that were, you know, um, born with the different things that are going on, and so it's I think that's something we've seen too of of that being able to how much those doctors have to speak to one another, work together, you know, work together in the healthcare world. And we all know that as parents, we are our child's biggest and best advocate. We know our child better than anyone else knows them. Um, And so I do think it's so important that we understand how to advocate for them, um, give them a voice, but as you said, encourage them to be their own voice, because in all honesty, at 18, um, they could choose to not even let us be a part of it anymore, which is super scary to think about, but they've got to start making those decisions on their own. So I'm so glad that Vanderbilt has someone like you who really, um, this is way more than just a job for you. I mean, you can tell in the way that you, you know, we've only worked with you for the last, you know, half a year or so, but it's been really such a joy to work with you. You can tell that it's more than just a job. It's a passion that you're really trying to get everybody on the same page. You're such a good advocate for the hospital and the four Spence Fund while also um, really kind of being that guiding force of saying, instead of the Forrest Spence Fund working with 30 different people at Vanderbilt, you've been so great at saying, hey, let me be your point person. I'll go to that child life specialist. I'll go to that chaplain. I'll go to that social worker. Let me kind of wrangle things together to be your one person, which has been huge. So we're so thankful for you. And how are you doing after your breast cancer diagnosis? For the most part, good. You know, I mean, I'm healthy and grateful for that. Um, but I think it's, it's, there's days that are more difficult. You know, every time I have, I have arthritis in my neck. So every time my arthritis flares, I'm like, is that a flare or is it back? And, you know, I try to live my life as though until it, until cancer is back, it, I don't have it. So I have to just kind of move forward and um, definitely there's so many lessons that I learned during those two years about pausing, about, for lack of a better term, collecting people, collecting relationships. Um, you know, we think about all the things that we have in our homes or that are sitting on our desk in our office, but really the most important things that we can collect and treasure are those connections that we have with people. And when I had to go to chemo for, I don't know, like four months at least, um, every week, a different friend would take me. And that was time with someone that I hadn't made the time before to have lunch with or go for that walk with. Um, And so trying to make sure that I don't go back to getting so busy that I forget to both have those moments with friends and be mindful of creating space and designating time to be present for other people and to show up for other people when they need it, even if they don't realize it or don't know to ask. Yeah. How old were your children when you were diagnosed? My oldest was 12 and my youngest was seven or so. So we were, you know, middle school and down. Wow. Goodness gracious. Um, And two years really is kind of what your treatment path really was about a two-year journey. Yep. 
my goodness. Um, well, I'm so glad that you're doing okay today and that you definitely have a great um, realistic view on what that looks like, you know, live for today while being conscientious of, of, you know, um, you know, your body and being aware, but also, um, knowing that, you know, there's no predicting what tomorrow can bring, um, in life in general. So, um, I'm sure that was definitely a a big thing in 2015 for you. And then you said you have a daughter that has, is it juvenile arthritis? You said, yeah. Okay. It's juvenile idiopathic arthritis and systemic lupus is just kind of a bonus autoimmune disorder. So. Okay. Okay. And how is she doing kind of day to day with that? So she is 18. And so we have very much um, navigated that transitional piece that I spoke about um, when she, about a year after she was diagnosed, so she was maybe 15 she somehow ended up with meningitis. And um, because of the autoimmune things going on, it didn't present in the same way that it usually would. She didn't have a fever and there really wasn't anything showing up except in her cerebrospinal fluid, which meant doing lumbar punctures repeatedly um, to see what was going on. Um, And that time that she was in the hospital was when she, that light bulb went off for her that she wanted to know what was going on and she wanted to be asking questions and she wanted to track her labs and doctors to speak directly to her. Um, And so that was really kind of amazing to see her start to advocate and start to educate providers about how certain words or certain ways that they were with her made her feel that if they came into the room and were standing instead of sitting down, it felt like they were hovering over her and looking down on her and that she wasn't an equal participant. Um, And so to watch her start to express those things and um, advocate for herself was really incredible. So she's in college now. And it's been a challenge, you know, it's, it's a challenge for her to stay on top of everything. Um, sometimes she tries to communicate with providers and they don't listen to her the way she really needs to be supported. And so trying to support her through that instead of just going directly to the doctor myself um, is a learning curve for all parties involved. Yeah. But she's, She's away in college and she's in Baltimore. She's not anywhere near us and she's making it work. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, I know that that has got to be both empowering to her while also being a anxiety inducing. (laughs) Yes, definitely. So, I mean, I know just, you know, in my forties, sometimes having to um, deal with doctors can be, you know, something. And I remember that even when Forrest was sick, um, I was 27, David was 28. And, you know, so we were, and and we, and we looked young too. Like we didn't just, we weren't just young. We looked really young. And so I would also, I would notice sometimes that when the doctors would walk in to, you know, speak with us or do rounds or whatever, if my in-laws were in there with us at the same time, they would address my in-laws. They would not address me. And uh, I remember I eventually got to a point where I was like, they don't make the decision. I do. I make these decisions. Because at this point, David was back full-time working at the Trauma One hospital right next door to us. So it really was me doing all the interacting. And so I I remember looking at at one nurse surgeon in particular and being like, you, you got to speak to me. Like, they're not. They're the grandparents. I'm the mom. 
all decisions have to go through me. And that was really hard to do because I think I was intimidated by, you know, here are these brilliant, such smart, you know, um, knowledgeable people. And obviously I don't have the same medical knowledge they do. This is the first time I've come across this really hard. I had gone, I had walked my mom's medical journey with breast cancer and really been her support um, during that, I guess, five years earlier. I think my mom was diagnosed when I was 22, so five years earlier. But but my mom obviously was making so many of those decisions on her own. I was more of the support of taking care of her after the surgeries and taking her to her appointments and listening when she couldn't, you know, comprehend everything. But I wasn't really the one making the decision. So this really was the first time where I was having to say, hey, uh, it's me. I'm going to make all decisions. You're going to speak to me. You know, you're not going to talk down to me. You're not going to talk to my in-laws. My in-laws aren't going to speak through me. Like it's, it's me. Um, and that's really hard to do for sure. So kudos to her for, you know, taking on that. And, and I know that's got to be something tough too, as a mom, because you just, there's so much in a way that we just want to come in. I think that's why that helicopter parent has ever been talked about in the first place because it is sometimes easier to go all right I'm coming this is it I'm doing it I'm calling them I'm doing but what a um, joy that she can eventually handle this completely on her own so um, so you have really I mean you talked about three of your four children having some real medical needs throughout and so um, you've experienced Monroe Carroll both as a parent of three patients, um, and now in your role as well. And so, you know, tell me how, you know, I hear certain things that you talk about as far as the transitioning, the advocating, the uh, making sure that families receive the support. What are some things, what are some dreams and hopes that you have for the Family Resource Center? What are some things that you hope? I mean, you and I have had a lot of discussions about the future as far as Forcements Fund collaborating with Monroe Carroll and some of the things that we hope to see. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I think y'all do amazing things already, um, but I know you've got to have some ideas of things that you're hoping to see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think even just the physical space as we start to welcome families back with siblings, with visitors, and all of those things, making sure that just our physical space is updated and feels, feels welcoming and feels like a space that patients and families want to be and can relax a little bit and get away from everything going on in the rest of the hospital. Um, so we're already starting to look at our physical space and think through how can we make it more comfortable and more engaging for children to be in. So I think that's one piece of it. I think, you know, as I mentioned, health equity is something that's just so important to me. And I want to make sure that as Vanderbilt's footprint increases and we're better able to serve families that might not be coming onto our campus, and um, whether that's through telehealth or through physical spaces and other places, I want to make sure that those families have equal access to the supports and the resources that they would have if they were on site. Um, so really being thoughtful about that. And then we have a lot of families that don't speak English as their first language. So just imagine, um, you know, you it in your early 20s with a new child and having to overcome the, the difficulty of advocating for yourself and then layer onto that, that culturally speaking to back to a doctor that way might not be something that you have ever been taught to do. 
or you don't speak English as your first language. And so you're having to hope that an interpreter is around at that time. And then you're trying to just learn about your child's condition and all of the materials available are in English. And so all of those are just barriers to care that, you know, that, that's not personalizing care and that's not centering our patients and families. And so trying to really be thoughtful and intentional about how we can make sure that all patients and families, regardless of what their touch point is with Monroe Carroll, where they are physically, where they are emotionally, where they are financially, and what their education background is, that they are supported in the way that they need to have positive health outcomes. Yeah. So I used to, one of the ways that when I'm I'm talking to families, um, especially families that speak a different language, I mean, I really do remember that when, when the healthcare workers were speaking to me about forced, I truly felt like they were speaking a different language because it was nothing that I understood. And so I've always said to add on top of that, that you don't even understand this language that they're speaking in the first place. If you don't, if English is not your first language, your natural language, and they're saying these huge words with you, I I can't even imagine how alone those families feel. Um, And I think that is, that's really a huge need I see across the board is that, you know, there should be so many more, hopefully, so many more translators, um, available things in the language that they speak to be able to read and understand. We're seeing that in some of the programs we support too, just even trying to transfer those to where they're not just in English. Um, obviously, that's a cost and a time, but we see how much, um, how benefits that, how much that's beneficial to families as well. So in one role that I had with um, parent mentoring is I had a couple families ask if I would come back for the conference they had with their healthcare team to discuss the end of life and kind of how it, you know, had gone, including the autopsy report. But if I would kind of be their advocate, you know, um, be really on the, on the family side of listening and talking. And one of the things that I learned so quickly in this is that, um, especially those that have maybe less patient interaction, you know, they're more, you know, in the lab and doing the autopsies and things like that, that when they went to present it, the words they used were, I mean, just completely not any words that anybody would understand. And at that point, really, I think I had, you know, probably had eight to 10 years under my belt of, you know, walking with so many families that I really understood a lot of, of the words. And I remember stopping the, the, the whole thing. I remember stopping and saying, hey, instead of just constantly using all the medical terms that you're using, could you instead just say, and this is what I found with the brain. And this is what I found with the heart instead of, you know, neuro, atopathy, la, 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 just, let's just really, let's just make it very simple for this family to understand and then also make it to where they feel very comfortable to ask questions because right now we're making it where there's no way they're going to ask questions. They're so overwhelmed 
with what you're saying. They don't even know what questions to ask. And after the conference, one of the neonatologists um, and one of the other physicians really did stop me and say, hey, we've we've not really ever had anybody that has sat in on these and just said, hey, let's let's kind of let's not maybe use all the medical terms. Let's maybe just talk in a little bit of simpler terms. And they're like, it was very eye opening to us because, you know, we were really thinking more about, we wanted all the doctors that were in there to understand. And so we were doing it all in the medical language versus really thinking about, can this family understand? And I was like, that's the purpose is for the family to understand what you're saying. Not so much every other doctor. They could read the report. They don't have to be in this. This is the opportunity for the family to come before and say, can you explain this in more detail? And in all honesty, they want closure. They want to know that they did everything that they could, that they everything that they needed to do for their child, they did it. That they, whatever the outcome was, um, that's how they need to feel less about blank, blank, blank medical. Um, and so I already feel like you, you, if you then add on top of it, they speak a different language, you know, they English is not their main language. I can't even understand the struggles that that is. It's such a lonely place to sit in a hospital room with your child with your parent, whoever it may be. And then to not even understand what they're saying is such a difficult thing. And I think even, you know, we have interpreter services and we have, you know, the language line, but think of all of the other interactions you have with families, you know, going to the quiet room or grabbing a snack. And if all of that is in language that you don't understand, you know, you, you miss out on all of that support as well. Just that, that peer support from families. And so then child life specialists and other ancillary services that are coming in to support you, they, they become your lifeline. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Well, tell me a little bit, just kind of as we close up, what would you want a caregiver to know about your job and how you could help them? And even, you know, if we have families listening right now that has a child in Monroe Carroll, junior children's hospital, what would you encourage them to do? What would you encourage them to do to learn more about the services that the Family Resource Center offers, how y'all are able to help? You know, what would you say to caregivers right now? Um, I think for the, the caregivers, it's just really important that they remember that we're here. You know, during COVID for a little while, things slow down or change the way things were being done um, to make sure that our patients and families were safe and that our staff was safe. But we're back and we're open and we're staffed and we want to support families, but we can only support them if we know that they're out there. And so if there's ever anything a family needs that is not specifically clinical, then chances are we're going to be able to connect them to who they need you know, whether that's social work or if they're struggling with food insecurity or whatever it may be, you know, we don't want families walking around in clothing for three days because they didn't expect to be here and they can't do laundry because they don't have anything to put on while they're washing their clothes. You know, we don't want families who are stressed because they have one child that's in the hospital or even at a clinic visit 
and another child at home that is struggling with behavioral issues or autism or whatever it may be, not have support for that child as well. And we have so many resources available for both patients and siblings and families, um, but we can only support the families that we know about. So when in doubt, have a family stop by or send us an email and we will reach out, reach back out and we will connect those families with anything that they need. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the most important piece is there's so many programs and so many resources here um, and we just need to make sure they land in the hands of the people that need them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know we've got some exciting things that we have already done, you know, with Monroe Carroll programs that we already have in place and um, different projects that we've done. And then we have visions and excitements about the future. And so um, we're excited to continue to collaborate with Monroe Carroll uh, Junior Children's Hospital and collaborate with your team. Y'all have been truly a gift to the Four Spence Fund, your staff, and just even you know, obviously you yourself has been a gift to us. And so we're so thankful for everything that y'all do and the way that you support families and the way that you let them know that they're not alone. And as you said, if, if y'all don't have the, the, whatever it is that they need, you have the resources, whether it's inside or outside the hospital resources, you know, whether it's the four spits fund or many other nonprofits who support y'all, um, you know, y'all, have the ability to be able to put your hands and get your hands on something to be able to help that family. And so we're so thankful um, for y'all and for the family resource center there in the hospital. And, and likewise, you know, I think the Forest Spence Fund, one of the unique and most important pieces to me is that this was driven by an experience that you had. And so the driving force behind it and what is centered in all of the supports that you offer for the hospitals that you work with and the patients and families that we serve is keeping patient and family-centered care as our true north. That at the end of the day, all decisions and all things that we do have to come back around to what is best for that patient and family and what do they need in that moment to make sure that they are not walking through whatever they're going through alone. Um, and so at the very heart of your mission, it keeps us centered and grounded in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we know, you know, we're working with some of the best children's hospitals in the world. And so we don't, our, our intentions are not in any way of changing the way medically these hospitals are taking care of these children, because, you know, I don't, I don't know if, any other places that do it any better um, than the hospitals that we work with. Um, but we know just from our own experience and the experience in the last 15 years of so many families that we've interacted with um, that there's so much more than just the medical that um, as you've talked about, you know, the health equity, the support of friends and family and, you know, um, the meal insecurities, I mean, the, the not having the food, the transportation, the bills, all those things that also are such a big part too of that medical journey of getting that family. And there's been so much research shown even of if the family can be there, someone can be there to help um, support the child, be there for the child, make decisions that research shows that the child actually gets better more quickly. And so we want to do whatever we can to make sure that we can support that, you know, support 
the family, the siblings, the grandparents, whatever it may be, um, because the hope is, you know, we want to see the patient obviously do well, uh, but we want to see the whole family as a whole. We want that family unit to stay together. We want to see that marriage thrive, not have struggles. We want to see those siblings do well through it all. Um, we're not naive to know that that how much an illness of a child can affect just the ripples affect all the way out. And so, you know, whatever we can do to kind of support that. And sometimes that's not even, you know, maybe a family doesn't need the financial help. Maybe a family doesn't need, you know, any of the things that we can offer, but sometimes it's even just us being able to speak to people or we have a lot of groups who reach out to us and say, I've got a friend, what's something I can do? And we say, here's a long list. These are ways that we have found through the years that have been blessings to people. Go mow their lawn. Make sure the trash cans are on the street when the trash comes. You know, if they're if you're their neighbor, pick up their mail each day, walk their dog. You know, there's very tangible, often that don't cost money, ways to help families. And so sometimes it's just even us being able to support those that are trying to support them and say, these are ways that we can encourage you to give back um, and help families. You know, it doesn't, yes, we have care bags. Yes, we have celebration bags and gas cards and meal vouchers, but we also want to be a support to the community to say, you can do those things too. We have come up with all these ideas, either from our experience or many others' experiences or all of the above, but let us give you ideas of what you can do um, and go and do it. Do it on your own, uh, whatever it may be. So thank you for everything. I know that you are a gift based upon your own walk with your children and your own health journey um, and that that has made a difference in the type of director you are um, is, is from all of our experience. And so thank you for everything you do and thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. It was so great to spend some time with you. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. We hope that this podcast is a resource for you and a source of support. Whether you are facing illness in your own family or want to walk beside other families dealing with childhood illness, we want the stories, wisdom, and knowledge shared to give you hope. Episodes will be released bi-weekly, so be sure to subscribe today.